Tonight we're going through the book of Titus. We're going to do chapters 1 and 2 this evening. On Wednesday nights we're going through the Bible. We finished 2 Timothy and we are starting the book of Titus. So turn with me to the book of Titus. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your faithfulness. We thank you for your goodness in our lives and our present, your presence here with us tonight. And Lord, we just ask that our hearts would be open to the things that you would want to speak to us, the things that you would want to encourage us with. And we thank you that you're our rock, that you're our fortress, you're our deliverer, our strong tower. And we come to you, we run to you this evening, and we thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. From order to chaos. No, hopefully from chaos to order. Many times in our lives we feel like things are in chaos and God wants uh, to bring order. We find this young pastor, Titus, in the island of Crete, right in the center of the Mediterranean. And the churches are in a place of chaos and God wants to use him to bring it to order. I like to think of it as my garage. My garage oftentimes goes into a place of chaos when there are projects, but primarily, thanks to my wife Amber, it goes back to a place of order. She loves tools, she loves doing projects, and she gets that garage organized, and it is such a blessing to have an organized garage, because you know where stuff is at, and you can find it, whether it's a pump to pump up a basketball, or a kid's bike, or find that all-powerful power drill to be able to get a project done. And I, I bet that there's some of us tonight where you feel like your life is a bit in chaos for one reason or another. And the things that God asked Titus to do in these churches, I think, apply to our lives as well. If we'll apply these truths through the power of the Holy Spirit, God can take our chaos and bring it into a place of order. Not that there's the absence of trial, but there is his peace in the midst of that trial. And I think a lot of people are looking for that order or that security or that peace in life, and it can only come from the Lord. Amen? God's the only one that can bring order to our chaos. So let's look in verse 1 of chapter 1. It says, Paul, a bondservant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. Paul, once again, is specifically writing to a individual, which is Titus. It's different from his other epistles. This is considered one of the pastoral epistles. What do we know about Titus? Titus was a Gentile convert from Galatians 2, verse 3. He served and he traveled with the apostle Paul, and also he was sent to the church of Corinth. We see that in 2 Corinthians chapter 7. And then in around 63 AD to 64 AD, when Timothy was sent to Ephesus, Titus was sent to Crete to provide leadership over these churches. If you're wondering where Crete is, you might look at a map in the back of your Bible or pull up Google Maps and you'll see pretty much smack dab in the center of the Mediterranean is this island of Crete. So Paul introduces himself as the bondservant of Jesus Christ. Bondservant is slave by choice from the Old Testament, where you would have a a Hebrew who was a slave to another Hebrew for six years. On the seventh year, the law said he was to be set free. If he wanted to remain the slave of that master, he could choose to do so 
and be called a bondservant. And here Paul, he refers to himself as the slave by choice to Jesus Christ. It's how he saw his life. It was his identity. What he had chose to do was to be the bondservant of Jesus Christ. Hopefully we have found and we're living in the reality of surrender to Christ brings freedom. Isn't that true? When we realize my life doesn't belong to me, I'm surrendering it to the Lord, then we find ultimate freedom. Also, Paul's an apostle. He was sent out by the Lord to pioneer these churches to go to dark and unreached areas. He says, according to the faith of God's elect and the knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness, the elect being who God chooses, the, those chosen by the Lord. What are marks or characteristics of the elect is faith according to God, where we're trusting in him, and then also acknowledging the truth. And now acknowledgement with the truth does imply surrender. Like I may have knowledge of the speed limit, but it doesn't mean I'm surrendering to the speed limit, right? It's one thing to know what the speed limit is, and it's another thing to obey it. And so this is not just knowing about the truth, or I have an intellectual understanding of it, but I'm surrendering my life to it. I'm acknowledging the truth. Those are marks of, of a believer. In this introduction, we have this powerful statement, in the hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised before time began. In the hope of eternal life with God. So as we think about having order in our chaos, going from chaos to order, Number one, if you're taking notes tonight, is we have to be grounded in eternity. We have to be grounded in this reality of eternal life with God. This is the promise that has been given to the believer. John 3.16 doesn't say that if we believe that we maybe will have eternal life. It says that you will have eternal life, that you have eternal life, you possess it. It's the promise that has been given to us as a believer. When we think of the biblical word for hope, it's not a wish or a whim. It's not, I hope we get some moisture this spring, or I hope the Broncos find a good quarterback and things work out a, a little bit better. No, hope from a biblical perspective is a confident trust in who God is and God's promises. So when we think of eternal life, it's not I hope that I have eternal life. I hope that God is going to be good to his promises, but I know that I'm going to have eternity with God. It's been quite a week for us as a church family, a week and a half a church family in our church. We lost an eight-month-old uh, little boy. He passed away in his sleep uh, just about two weeks ago, two weeks ago tomorrow, Thursday afternoon, two weeks ago. And we had his, his memorial service with his parents and his older brothers and sisters had an 18-year-old pass away in, in our fellowship a few days later. Just on Monday, we had his memorial service here in the sanctuary. And that's, that's difficult. Those are difficult things to walk through, to, to see an 8-month-old pass away, to have an 18-year-old pass away. And then in conjunction with my dad's been going through with his, his own health, and I've got to tell you, where my peace is at is in eternal life. That, that's the hope and the reality of knowing Man, this eight-month-old is with the Lord. This 18-year-old is, is with the Lord. As I was sitting with my dad in ICU over the weekend and watching him and, and others, and he was doing fairly well compared to others. And, you know, ICU is not a place you want to spend the weekend and 
or watching people around you, the verse that kept coming to my heart and mind is the outward man is perishing. You know? We don't like to think about it. We don't like to meditate upon it. But every day, our body is perishing. Since the fall took place, Adam sinned, our bodies are subject to death, aren't they? We're not going to live eternally in this body. This body is very temporary. But that verse goes on to say, but the inward man is renewed day by day. And we're not going to make sense of this life. We're not going to make sense of why things happen. You know, why do some people live to 80 and others live to eight months old? Why do some people seem to have an easy road in life while others have a a hard road in life? Jesus never promised a peaceful existence in this life. In fact, he said, in this life you will have tribulation. But be of good cheer. I've overcome the world. He he has conquered all of this. He's conquered sin. He's conquered death. If you're in Christ, you have eternal life. Jesus said, don't let your heart be troubled because I go to prepare a place for you. He didn't say, don't let your heart be troubled because this life's going to be easy. There's not going to be disappointment. There's not going to be disease. He said, no, eternity is going to be worth it. It's the joy that's set before you. Church, you are going to be disappointed if you put your hope in this life. This life is good. This life is a blessing. We have relationship with Christ and others, but our expectation is in eternal life. Timothy, or excuse me, Titus, has a tough job to do in Crete. And what Paul's saying to him first and foremost is you better be grounded in eternity. You better know that you have eternal life with God. And I love the way that verse 2 declares it. God cannot lie. (laughs) It is well within your character to lie. What? Did he just say that out loud? It's well within my character to lie. We're, We're going to lie throughout our lives as much as we don't want to admit that. But it's not even within the realm of possibility for who God is to lie. So he's promised eternal life to those who believe in him. He'll be good upon his promise. And this promise was before time began. Verse 3. But has in due time manifested his word through preaching, which God committed to me according to the commandment of God our Savior. God shows forth his word through preaching, through sharing, through declaring his word. Only the plan of God through his grace and his mercy, that he could use us, sinful beings, saved us by grace, also using us by grace, to where we could manifest the word of God. Paul says, this was given to me by commandment that I should share the word of God. It's also been given to us. Jesus declared in the Great Commission, go and make disciples. He wants us to share the gospel. He wants us to share the word. We've been commanded to do this. The recipient of the letter to Titus, a true son in our common faith. He refers to Titus as a son. This shows the kind of investment that Paul put into Titus and also into Timothy. How does discipleship work? How do we make disciples? It's through relationship. It's through investing our lives into others. He says, to my son in our common faith. He sees himself in the same journey of faith with Titus. Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior. Grace and peace are the normal greetings of Paul in his letters. Grace is always first, then peace. 
Grace was the Greek greeting. Peace was the Hebrew greeting. We experience God's grace, then we know his peace. Only in his letter to Timothy and to Titus did he include mercy. What is mercy? Not giving to somebody what they deserve. He was closer to Timothy and Titus than anybody else, thus the need for mercy. (laughs) That's a key to relationships. The more close that we get to one another, the greater need it is to extend mercy to each other. In verse 5, For this reason I left you in Crete, that you should set in order the things that are lacking, going from chaos to order, and appoint elders in every city as I have commanded you. So these churches... Several churches, we don't know how many, on this island of Crete, they don't have adequate godly leadership. Churches have been started, but leaders have not been raised up. Men have not been called to this place of being godly leaders inside of this church. So he's given this exhortation, there's things that are lacking. There's things that are in chaos that need to be put in order. So we have this list of requirements for leaders. It's very similar to 1 Timothy chapter 3. It says, If a man is blameless, the husband of one wife, having faithful children, not accused of dissipation or insubordination, for a bishop must be blameless, a steward of God, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not given to wine, not violent, not greedy for money, but hospitable, a lover of what is good, sober-minded, just, holy, self-controlled, holding fast the faithful word as he's been taught, that he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and convict those who, those who are a contradict. So number two, to have things go from chaos to order is we need to establish godly leadership. Establish godly leadership. We see this oftentimes in churches. The way that the leadership goes, then that's the direction that also the church goes. When you look at this list for elders, the requirements of qualifications, what would you say that it's based on? I think two things. A love for God and his word, which results in character. Godly leadership springs forth out of character. Timothy is to go through these churches and find men of character and put them into these places. We're not going to go into an exhaustive study of these characteristics because we did that just a few weeks ago in 1 Timothy chapter 3. But I want you to think about this in your own life because it's really easy to read this section of scripture and go, well, God's not calling me to be an elder or a pastor, so I'm, I'm out on this endeavor of character. But this is what I'd like to suggest to you right now is... A lot of the chaos that we see in our lives is because of a lack of godly leadership. And that all of us are called by God to be a leader. And if we will begin to serve in the way that God is calling us to, then that's going to start to have influence. So wherever you're at, whether you're a student, you're you're single and working, you're you're married, you know, you're a single mom, you're a single dad, it doesn't matter where you're at, in life, the specific details of your life, is whether we like it or not, God has given us leadership. And what kind of leader are we? So the question's not, am I a leader or not? The question is, what kind of leadership am I providing? And is it one that's based in character? 
Is it one that's based in loving God and loving others? And this is also what I want you to hear, is God uses leadership. God uses leadership. If godly men lead in the church, God uses that and people respond. If there's godly leadership in the home, God uses that. Husbands and fathers, if, if we'll attempt in humility to lead in the way that God desires, God's going to use that inside of our homes. Moms, wives, if you will seek to be a godly woman inside of the responsibility that God has given to you, God's going to use that. In your workplace, if you lead in a godly example, God's going to use that. You might say, well, I'm not a supervisor. I don't have authority. I'm the one who's told what to do. Do it in a godly way, and that's going to influence others. I'll tell you, verses 5 through 9 are godly characteristics. And you apply that to where you're at, and God's going to use it. Don't be self-willed right where you're at, and God's going to use that. Be a lover of God instead of a lover of money, and God's going to use that. And I'm thankful for the godly leadership that we do see throughout our society, but I'm praying for more godly leadership because God uses leadership that's done in a way that honors him. That's how things go from chaos to order. But a lot of times, what do we do? We say, I don't want to lead. I don't want to lead in my home. I don't want to lead in my church. I don't want to lead in my community. I don't want to lead in my workplace. I don't want to lead in my neighborhood. I'll leave that up to to someone else. And God is saying, I'm longing for Christ-centered servant leaders. Jesus came as a servant leader, where he came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. I'm sure many of you are leading in a godly fashion, but you're tired (laughs) and you're wore out and you're saying, I don't know if it's worth it. I've been doing this a long time, not perfectly, but I don't see the impact. Man, you don't know what God's doing. And it's never about the results. The results aren't up to us. It's always about obedience and faithfulness. Amen? Jeremiah, the prophet in the Old Testament, he was obedient and faithful in godly leadership, and we don't see one convert. We don't see one person responding to his message, but his life goes down in the word of God as one of faithfulness. So to go from chaos to order is to establish godly leadership. In verse 10, For there are many insubordinate but idle talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision. Insubordinate is not living under God's authority. So there were especially those of the circumcision. What does that mean? It means Jews who didn't believe that Christ was the fulfillment of the law. So they would go to these new believers and say, Oh, it's great that you have received Christ as your Savior, but now you have to go live under the law. Strong exhortation in verse 11, whose mouths must be stopped, who subvert whole households, teaching things which they ought not for the sake of dishonest gain. Did you catch that? Why were they teaching the false doctrine? For money, for dishonest gain. They were seeing it as a way to rob people of their money. So number three, if we're going to have God's order in our lives, is we have to confront false teaching. We have to confront false teaching. For Timothy to be effective in this island of Crete, he's going to have to go after it in a spiritual battle. He's going to have to get his boots on and go to war. And there's some teaching in these churches that's contrary to the gospel 
that's works-based, and he's got to stop the mouths of these false teachers. This is not something that we think about in a lot of times in our lives, but this is the question for us tonight. How much chaos in my life is a result of false teaching? Believing a lie. John 10.10, Jesus gives us Satan's intent. He says that Satan has come, the enemy has come to kill, to steal, and to destroy. How does he do that? Through lies. He's the father of lies and through deception. Jesus' mission state is given, but he came to give us life and to give it more abundantly. A lot of times chaos is ensued in my life because I've listened to a lie. I've listened to false teaching. Now, it would be nice if false teaching came in a very obvious wrapper. I'm here to rip you off. I'm here to destroy your life. I'm here to take you away from Christ and those that you love. But that's not how it works. Satan's an angel of light. So many times he's going to wrap the false teaching in the package of Jesus, in the name of Jesus, in the name of God's word. So how do we protect ourselves from false teaching? When you go to the movies, are you aware that there is a teacher behind that movie? I'm not saying don't go to the movies, but just be aware that you're paying for a teaching. And a very expensive teaching, unless you went to Redbox. And they're giving you a message. And so listen to the message that's being taught and go, does it line up with Scripture? Does it line up with Jesus? Does it line up with the book of Acts? Does it line up with the epistles? And sometimes there's even movies that come out with a theme about God that's going to give you lies about who God is. So you can't just sit back and go, oh, this is a Christian movie. There's no false teaching coming in here. Right? Now, sometimes they're great. Sometimes you go to a movie about God and they hit a home run and it lines up with scripture. But not every time. Right? You're going to pick up books that are published under a Christian label. Did you know most of those labels now have been bought by secular companies? And they publish Christian books because they know there's a market inside of the church. So did you catch that? Unbelievers own the publishing companies now that print Christian books. So that's not a huge problem. It shows that there's a lot of Christians in the United States But you have to understand, just because it's under a Christian label doesn't mean that you check your brain out when you begin to read that book. And when you begin to come to church, hopefully when you come here, you come with an examining heart, a listening ear to say, is this really scriptural? Is this really biblical? I need to run it through the filter of God's word. And then here's what's crazy for Titus is the mouths must be stopped, (laughs) So so that's part of the job of Titus is he's got to get in there and do some difficult work and say, no, you can't teach this in the name of God. You can't teach this inside of the church. It doesn't line up with, with God's word. And I think for us to have that peace, to have that order from chaos, we have to examine our lives, examine our homes, and have some difficult conversations and say, you know what? This is a false teacher. I'm going to call it out. It's not pointing us to Christ. It's not pointing us to a life that is glorifying the Lord. Confront false teaching. In verse 12, one of them, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always lazy 
evil beasts and lazy gluttons. This is one of their own prophets. It's how they describe the people of Crete. Paul says, this testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith. Tough crowd to go deal with, right? And you're on an island. You can't get away from these homeboys. Always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. What encourages me about this verse is God has the ability and the desire to redeem and transform and change aspects of our culture that are destroyed because of sin. Part of our culture is God-given and God-breathed. He creates different people groups that glorify him. But each people group has sinned and fallen away from the Lord, and that image has been tainted. You could say of Americans, you could probably fill in some traits that aren't too God-honoring, and you could do that of every culture. And God wants to come in, and he wants to change that sinful aspect of the culture. He wants to change the island of Crete to where they're not always liars. They're not always evil beasts. They're not always lazy gluttons. But again, Timothy has to confront it sharply. He's got to rebuke them sharply and be sound in the faith. In verse 14, not giving heed to Jewish fables and commandments of men who turn from the truth. Apparently part of the false teaching was this elevation of stories and a diminishing of God's word. So coming in and teaching Jewish stories, but not evaluating or elevating God's word. So we always want to put God's word in that supreme place above all else. To the pure, all things are pure. But to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But even their mind and their conscience are defiled. Oh, the difference Christ makes in our lives. To the pure, all things are pure. But if you don't know Christ, you're not walking with Christ, then everything is, is defiled, even the mind and the conscience, a need for Christ to come and restore. Verse 16, they profess to know God, but in works they deny him, being abominable, disobedient, and disqualified for every good work. So you have those in Crete, in the churches, and they're professing to know God, but their lifestyle is in rebellion to God. Works don't save us, but works are evidence of what we truly believe. So our life, though it won't be perfect, should be evidence of the fact that Christ has saved us and gotten a hold of us. If I take a rock and I throw it into a pond, it has an effect, doesn't it? It's the same way with Jesus. When Jesus is thrown into our lives... He has effect. He has impact. We start caring for things that we didn't care for prior to that point. Chapter 2, verse 1. It's been a long time since I've done two chapters in one night. You, you just happen to come on that evening. So verse 1, chapter 2. But as for you, speak the things which are proper for sound doctrine. Titus is not to get caught up in all of these sinful things, or discouraged or overwhelmed, what he is to be caught up in is continuing to speak sound doctrine, which is the word of God. To me, this is the example that we find in the book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah had the task of building the wall around the temple. He was getting attacked by the enemy, but throughout the book, you hear these words. They continued to build the wall. They continued to build the wall put up one brick at a time. How is the wall built? One brick at a time. 
How do we continue in the work of God? We continue speaking the word of God. But as for you, speak the things that are proper of sound doctrine. In these next few verses, number four, we find instruct the family of God. For these churches to go from chaos to order, the whole church family needed to be healthy. So there's an instruction for each demographic of the body of Christ, for older men, older women, and then also those who are young as well. So it begins with the older men. Instruct the family of God. The older men be sober, reverent, temperate, sound in faith, in love, in patience. First, the older men are instructed be sober. This is to be even, not prone to up and downs. When others are panicking, you're in that place of confidence with God. Reverent is to be in awe of God and be respectful to others. Temperate is to be self-controlled. Sound in the faith is continue trusting God. Don't stop trusting God. In love, giving that unconditional love that you've received from the Lord, and then in patience and having endurance. In our church family, in Rocky Mountain Calvary, we are blessed with a variety of ages, from young children all the way up to not so young. And we are blessed to have godly older men in our fellowship. And I want to just encourage any of you that say, you know what? I may not want to admit it, but I find myself in that place. I'm in that demographic. Is one, don't be ashamed of it. Be proud of it. You worked for it. You know, you've learned a thing or two. And God wants to use you to pass on your love for Jesus Christ to others. We're so thankful for you. We're thankful for how God's using you in our church and using you in our community. And I would encourage you to pray about, in this season of your life, how God would want to use you in a greater way. How can you get involved in the lives of others? We need you in children's ministry, in youth ministry, in the college ministry. We need you in the marriage mentoring. We need you in discipling others. We need you coming alongside younger men and beginning to to invest in them. We've kind of lost this art of discipleship and mentorship and passing on legacy, but I think younger men are craving it. Younger men are longing for it and saying, I I long for an older man to invest in my life. I can almost guarantee you, if you find yourself in that saying, yeah, I'm I'm an older man in that older demographic, you could go to men in our fellowship that are younger than you and say, hey, would you like to get a cup of coffee? They'll not say no. They'll say yes. I I would love to get a cup of coffee. And begin to ask them, hey, how are things going in your life? What what is God showing you? If God's blessed you with children and grandchildren, spend time with them. Pray with them. Read the scriptures with them. Make sure they know your testimony of how you came to, to know Christ as your Savior. And so part of what Paul is challenging Titus to do is he's saying, I want you to stir up the older men. I want you to make sure that the men know that they have a purpose and a a calling from God. In verse 3, the older women likewise, that they may be reverent in behavior, not slanderous, not given to much wine. This is the character of the older women. And just like the older men have a specific role in the church, so do the older women. Be one who's reverent, who's respectful to God and others, not slandering, not talking down about other people's character, not given to to much wine. 
for some reason I found this humorous and I probably shouldn't, but the idea of an older woman walking around the church sloshed is just not very attractive. <laughs> right? So, so that, in essence, is what Paul's saying. He's saying, love the Lord, older ladies. You know, don't, don't spend your days drunk with wine and being sloshed at the church or anywhere else. So, but it is kind of a funny visual in your mind. So instead of being caught up in drunkenness, verse 4, to admonish the younger women to love their husbands and to love their children. This verse is a verse of guidance for us in a ministry philosophy here in our church. Our women's ministry that meets on Tuesday mornings and Tuesday nights is built off of this verse of the older women in our church investing in the younger women. And God is really blessing women's ministry and really has for many years. It's one of the highlights of our church. And I'm so thankful for women in our church that take Titus 2 and say, this is my marching order. Here I am, I'm a part of RMC, and I want to invest in the younger women. And you younger women, are you saying, I want to be invested in, sign up for a women's Bible study. Come Tuesday morning, come Tuesday night. There's a whole team of godly women that want to invest in you and pour it into your life. It's a tremendous verse. And this exhortation to older women is to encourage younger women to love their husbands and to love their children. Why? Because husbands are hard to love. <laughs> so, so you older women, you come alongside and say, you know what, just keep loving that knucklehead. You know, keep praying for him. Just keep, coming, keep loving those kids. Keep loving those tender plants and pouring yourself into them. This is so contrary to culture, isn't it? Where are women going to be encouraged to love their husbands, to love their children, to pour into them, but it's God's heart. Also, older women instructing younger women in this to be discreet, chaste, homeworker, homemakers, good, obedient to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be blasphemed. It's not that investment can't be made outside of the home for women, but what's being highlighted here is the joy of investing inside of the home. So older women coming alongside of younger women saying, invest in the home, invest in the home. We see in the Proverbs 31, that woman investing in her home, and that's to be encouraged for the younger women. This is, again, not something that we find in culture. But it's worth it, it's valuable, and it's so needed. When is someone going to stand up to men and to women and say, let's invest in the home? I mean, what are some of the problems that we find in society. When we speak of chaos, we've got to speak of the chaos in the home, right? And it's difficult no matter how you slice it. But to stop investing, that's exactly what the enemy wants, you know? If we can get fathers and mothers disconnected from their marriage and disconnected from their children, Satan's won a huge victory in our society. And so God in his word saying, yeah, I want fathers to be fathers. I want fathers to, to be husbands. I want moms to be wives and to love their children. And, and if you're a parent, you're a single parent, or you're not a single parent, let, let's press into the Lord and say, God, I do want to provide that godly leadership inside of the home. It is so worthwhile. So many things in our lives nobody's going to remember. No one's even going to remember our accomplishments. But our kids are going to remember. Our grandkids are going to remember. Our spouse is, is going to remember 
So take this to heart and say, wow, God has given me this tremendous opportunity inside of the home. Now to the younger men and women in verse 6. Likewise, exhort the younger men to be sober-minded. If you find yourself in this younger demographic, just enjoy it. It's temporary. It's going to go real quick, right? So if you're here tonight and you say, yeah, I just, I just find myself in this younger phase. I, I don't consider myself to be in the older crowd. Then here's God's exhortation to you. Be sober-minded, which is to be level-headed. Don't be controlled by your emotions. Don't allow yourself to go to these big highs and these big, big lows. Remember, God's got it. Keep your heart and your mind fixed upon the Lord. Be sober-minded. Be level-headed. In all things, showing yourself to be a pattern of good works. I firmly believe from about 18 to 25, most people are forming the patterns of their lives. That they're really going to be very glad that they did, or they're going to really regret and seek to change later on in life. You get to be 30 years old, you get to be 35 years old, and you go, man, I'm so thankful for those godly patterns that were set in my life between 18 and 25. Or you wake up when 30 years old and you go, man, I've got some really rotten patterns in my life. And God, would you change me? And it's a lot easier to start now. It's a lot easier to start off on the right foot now. And this is what Paul is exhorting here is show for yourself the pattern of good works, the habit of following God, the habit of working hard, the habit of being a person of integrity. And throughout scripture, God raised up young people that were hungry to follow him, hungry to be able to serve him. Young men and women, don't wait to be the godly person saying, you know, okay, if I meet a godly woman, then I'll be a godly man. No, you be the godly man before you ever meet the godly woman. Young ladies, you're saying, you know, well, maybe I'll be a godly woman if I meet a godly guy. No, you be a godly woman because God's touched your heart, not just because you're trying to get a godly spouse and set that pattern in your life. You're wet concrete right now, okay? And God wants to put that pattern of good works in your life. In doctrine, showing integrity, this means believing sound doctrine about who God is. Reverence, one who shows respect. This goes a long way as a young person. Be reverent to the Lord and others. Be respectful. You know, people that are older than you, they have experienced more than life, more than life than you. Do the math. Okay, do it. Okay, here I am. I'm 25 years old. If someone's 50 years old, they live twice as long as you. Respect that, okay? Even if culture doesn't respect that and say, okay, I've got a lot that I can learn here. There's an old saying that experience is the best teacher. But why does it have to be your experience? Be reverent. Be reverent to God and be reverent to them. If you work with somebody as a 25-year-old and they're 75 years old, you better be reverent, you know? They've lived 50 years longer than you on the planet. Don't act like you own them and they're entitled to do things for you. No, it's the other way around. Respect them. Learn from them. It'll go a long ways. Be reverent. And then incorruptibility. We see this trait in Daniel. There's this huge pressure on young people for compromise, to become corrupt. 
Daniel's taken as a young man with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to be in Babylon, taken captive from his homeland in Israel. They changed their names to be God-honoring names to pagan names. They take them to their universities to try to fill their minds with all of these false gods. And what do we find with Daniel and his friends? They stay in a place of faithfulness. They don't compromise. Young people, don't compromise. You're in a college class, and they're telling you things about God that aren't true. Don't compromise. Hold on to who you know God to be. You've got convictions about sexual purity. Hold on to that. Don't don't compromise. Stay in that place of faithfulness, incorruptibility. Sound speech that cannot be condemned. What I love about sound speech is you can't condemn it. So that's a great, great proponent of sound speech. In verses 9 and 10, exhort bondservants to be obedient to their own masters, to be well-pleasing in all things, not answering back, not pilfering, but showing all good fidelity or faithfulness, that they may adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior, in all things. So everywhere that they go, that they would wear the doctrine of of Jesus Christ, that Christ loves them and Christ died for them. Paul is literally addressing slaves here. He's saying, if you're a slave, be faithful unto the Lord because you want people to see the reality of Jesus Christ. If that's the exhortation to slaves, how much more so is it to us as employees? God's not condoning slavery here, but he is saying, even in the position of slavery, you have the opportunity to have the testimony of Jesus Christ. Verse 11 and 12. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age. Number five, to go from chaos to order is to understand grace. Understand grace. Paul says that first, grace has appeared to all men. All men have the opportunity to respond to God's grace. What is grace? It's unearned, undeserved, unmerited favor. It's the gospel that Jesus would die in the place for our sins, that we're saved fully through his work upon the cross. Also, secondly, that then grace teaches us. It teaches us to deny lusts, to deny that temptation towards sin, and to live soberly and godly in this present age. Please catch this. Please understand this. Grace is the most powerful teacher. When we understand grace, it saves us, but it also moves us to want to live a godly life. Let's say have some credit card debt, have some student loan debt, have a big, huge mortgage. Living in this financial pressure Someone comes along to you and says, you know, some of this financial debt was because of irresponsibility on your part. You're like, no, duh. (laughs) But I am choosing to pay all of your debt. Your credit card debt, your student loan debt, your mortgage, completely debt-free. You don't owe anybody a penny. Plus, I'm going to put $10,000 in your account to get you started in the right direction to have an emergency fund. You don't deserve this, but I'm giving you a gift of grace. What do you think that would teach you about finances? It could teach you something really powerful, couldn't it? 
probably see it a little bit differently. If it didn't teach you anything about finances, if it didn't teach me anything about finances, could be a problem, right? See, God in his grace is complete, forgives us of far more debt than that, that I inflicted upon myself. And God's desire then is that grace that I've received would teach me and give me motivation to say, I don't want to stay in sin. I'm going to go ahead and deny those temptations, and I have a desire to live godly. This is what I experienced in my life growing up, is I grew up in a Christian family, went to Christian school, and I knew the way that I should live. I knew what godliness looked like. I just didn't want to do it. Anybody ever been there? You know, I was like, I, I'm not interested. No, no thank you. That doesn't seem like any fun at all. When God touched my heart with his grace, that he loved me while I didn't want to have anything to do with him, and that really hit home in my heart that all my sin was forgiven based on the work of Christ on the cross, I woke up and I wanted to be in the word. And I woke up and for the first time, I wanted to please the Lord. It was the power of grace in my life. It was understanding grace. Please hear me on this. If you see God's grace as a license for sin, as a paycheck to just continue in sin, you've misunderstood grace. Because the reason that Christ paid the price for us is to forgive us and to bring us out of that life of sin. And it's that grace that takes us from chaos to order. It teaches us to live soberly and righteously. In verse 13, looking for the blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's our hope this evening, is we're looking forward to being with him. We're looking forward to his second coming. This grace who gives himself for us, that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. He gave himself his sacrifice, his grace, to redeem us, to buy us back to take us out of every lawless deed, and then he purifies us for himself. So redemption and purification, it's his work in our lives. If I'm fighting that process, I'm fighting him because <laughs> he wants to purify me for himself to be that special treasure. And the result is then we're excited for good works. We're excited to serve the Lord. We're left in verse 15. Speak these things, exhort, rebuke with all authority, let no one despise you. Titus, go for it. Go for it. Titus being called by God to bring order from chaos. God wants to do the same thing in our lives. Not that there isn't going to be difficulty or challenge, but that there could be order in the midst of the, the chaos. How does that happen? First, by being grounded in eternity. Church, may we be grounded in eternity tonight. May the trials of our lives put us in that place of the confidence of eternal life. God wants to establish godly leadership. Lead right where you're at. If you're a high school student, lead where you're at. College student, lead where you're at. Mom or dad, lead where you're at. Walmart, lead there. If you're an electrician, lead there. You're a stay-at-home mom, lead there. You're serving in the church, lead there. You're an accountant, lead there. Wherever you're at in life, lead there. We need godly leadership. It takes us from chaos to order. Confront false teaching. It's out there. I'm sure 
There's parts of my life where I'm giving way to false teaching and because of it, there's chaos. So we've got to confront the false teaching with God's word. Be instructed to fulfill our place in the body. Older women, older men, we need you. Young people, we need you. We need a healthy body. But most importantly, understand grace. That Jesus died for our sins to redeem us and to purify us and then respond to the grace of God. Say, God, I want to live fully for you. Let's stand and let's pray and pray God would bring order in our chaos. Jesus, we thank you for your grace. We pray we would understand it like we've never understood before. You've paid our debt. We could never pay it back. We could never right the wrongs that we've done, but you so freely gave yourself. May we enjoy that grace. God, we know there's going to be trials in this life, but we thank you for eternal life. Would you minister to our hearts as we celebrate communion? In Jesus' name, amen.